you know, this whole contemplation of doing something again and again and again until you don't have to think in order to do it. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, this term floats around every now, especially in the classical education world, but kind of just as a general practice, mastery learning. Sure. Yeah, and Google it, and you get Mm -hmm. way more commentary than you could actually address. Yeah, Yeah. And, and so I'd like to just spend some time with you today talking about mastery learning. What is it? Is it a good thing? Should we be doing that? How do we avoid the pit? What are the pitfalls of a mastery learning approach? What are the pitfalls of not doing a mastery learning approach? How does that sound? Sure. Sound like a good agenda? Yeah. All right, go. <laughs> well, you know, I, I encountered this when I was young in the world of Suzuki method. You know, I was a Suzuki student, one of the first wave of those who had access to anything resembling Suzuki method back in the mid-60s mm. in Southern California. But I didn't really understand any of it until I had finished growing up and did a couple other things. And then I decided I would try to become a violin teacher. And so I started to travel and look at other violin teachers and see how they did stuff. And then I went to Japan and Mm -hmm. lived there for three years, studied with Suzuki and uh, Miss Mori in the school. And, you know, that was a complete change of perspective. And it had mostly to do with, well, the stunning level of ability that is so universal and widespread in in the Japanese Suzuki world. You know, anywhere you go, you can find teachers who have students that play really well. Right. But when you find a whole lot of teachers that have a whole lot of students who all play way above what could be expected or even imagined at that age. And we're talking what used to be, you know, college or postgraduate level performance repertoire Hmm. now being played beautifully by teenagers. So these are not prodigies or savants or anything. They're just like your normal kid that now can play. Yeah. It's what you might think if you saw them and didn't know Mm -hmm. the context or the history or the community or anything. Hmm. So one of the big questions is what makes Japanese Suzuki so much more amazing than American Suzuki? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not faulting or criticizing any teachers anywhere. Mm -hmm. This is just a complete cultural Mm -hmm. difference. And, you know, we've talked in the past, I think, about repetition. Mm -hmm. I think we we did talk about 10,000 times and then begins understanding and memory and all that. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, 
the more you do something again and again and again, the more you start to to see it fresh and understand it, the more you experience a level of effortlessness hmm. that is the beginning of true mastery. That's why the Japanese saying 10,000 times then begins understanding. But that's pretty radical to our Western mind. We have mm. nothing like that. Mm -hmm. We might say something stupid like practice makes perfect, <laughs> only that's not true. Only perfect practice makes perfect. Mm. Practice makes permanent. Right, yes. Um, you know, also we don't, what do we say? You know, try, try again, mm -hmm. like never give up, only we do because mm -hmm. third time's a charm and if you didn't do that, well. But in the, in the whole Eastern mentality, there's this, there's this willingness, I guess, to just keep doing the same thing again and again and again and again. And they don't have the, the repetition fatigue hmm. that we seem to have. Right. And I've noticed this in myself just being, you know, culturally American. It, it has to be really an amazing thing before I would, say, watch a movie a second time or read a book a second time. Not because I don't believe there'd be value or it would be enjoyable. It's because I already did that. And then when I break through that and go read a book a second time, especially if I do it within a short period of time of having finished, as opposed to, oh, yeah, I read that 10 years ago. Maybe it's time to read again, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then you just realize how much you missed the first time. And so this is true with what we're learning, whether it's something like reading or watching or observing, but also with things we do, mm -hmm. arts such as playing music or drawing or sports. I guess the people who really do understand repetition are the sports people, you know, music and sports. But uh, you were an athlete. Mm -hmm. You realize the key to success is that consistent application of effort in an organized, purposeful way. Mm -hmm. And that perhaps is one of the greatest benefits that kids can learn from doing a sport. Mine mm -hmm. was not a sport at school. It was karate. Mm, right. But I look back and I think that was one of the most formative things in my life. Interesting. Was starting mm. karate. It was before I could drive. So I'm thinking 13, 14, mm -hmm. 12, 13, 14, middle school, high school. And I would ride my bike and I would do that three times a week. And it was unlike anything I had experienced in school. It was a little bit more like what I had experienced in music, but even that wasn't as strong as it could have been. So, you know, this whole contemplation of, of doing something again and again and again until you don't have to think in order to do it. Right, right. So, of course, your little story right there about you learning karate when you were, you know, teenager – a little bit, yeah, yeah preteen. Yeah. Makes me think of the Karate Kid, the original movie, no. probably the second yeah. one, wax right? Wax on, wax off. <laughs> right, and he's like, are you kidding me? I, you're just getting all this free labor from me. And then it wasn't until later when he had to use it, that muscle memory, he just knew what to do. Exactly. And, you know, you might call this second nature. When something is so automatic or when something happens, your response is not a conscious, because that happened, I will do this. A lot of times we just react yeah. semi or subconsciously because we don't have to think about it. So it becomes second nature. Right, right. And you know, I think we all have things that we, we know so well. We know that we know that we know. And boy, what power there is in that. Mm -hmm. So 
I would look to the definition of mastery learning in that zone. And like I said, you go Google it up and there are thousands of people who will chime in on this and and define the words somewhat differently. Mm -hmm. We, particularly in more modern progressive education philosophy, have gradually lost, I think, the, the ideal of knowing something so well uh, that you don't have to figure it out. We kind of backtrack to the point, well, if you can figure it out, you don't have to know it. Right. Now we're, we backtrack to the point where you don't really even have to be able to figure it out. You just have to be able to ask somebody. Probably your phone. Right, exactly. Right? So, you know, <laughs> ask artificial intelligence questions mm-hmm. and it can give you answers. So why know anything? That doesn't quite carry over when you get into a physical art, like painting or playing an instrument or a sport or something. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the mentality you know, has kind of stuck in. I find it very interesting, the word rote learning. Yes. R-O-T-E. This today has a a somewhat negative, if not always negative connotation. If you say, you know, you learn it by rote, Mm -hmm. it, the baggage that comes is empty, meaningless, unnecessary, at best, tedious, stifling creativity, intellectual abuse Mm -hmm. at the worst. Mm -hmm. But go back 100 years ago, rote had a completely different connotation, which was you know it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to think. You don't have to remember. You just know. And uh, I would challenge everyone to just think, what's something you know? Maybe it's a, a poem or a prayer that you learned at a young age. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's something that you were forced to acquire in the process of teaching or you chose to as an adult. And you know it so well that you could be super distracted and you still say it or do it. Mm-hmm. Now, Find that thought in your mind, whatever that is. Are you not grateful for that? Yeah. Let's get back to the fundamental difference between Japanese Suzuki and most other Suzuki is right. is maintaining the memorized repertoire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have talked about this a lot, but I will tell you the absolute key to rapid acquisition of new skills and repertoire is to maintain the memorized repertoire. So in Japan, kids play the twinkle variations and theme, but they've learned it. They don't stop playing it. They play that every day while they learn lightly row. Once they can do lightly row without error and from memory, they don't stop playing twinkle and lightly row. They keep going, playing those every day while they learn the next piece. Once they've got Song of the Wind down, they play all those pieces, go talent roadie, And there are 17 pieces plus the four variations in book one. And in Japan, it would be unheard of for a student, say, you know, in the last few pieces of book one to not be able to play every single piece they ever learned from memory, probably without error, and make it look easy. And that continues even into book two, three, four, all the way up through the books. Most all Japanese students and I don't like the word because it carries such a a distaste for so many people. Mm-hmm. But review. Mm-hmm. They they play everything they've learned often enough that they never forget. And that's kind of where Suzuki got part of inspiration mm-hmm. was saying, hey, when children learn to speak a language, they don't learn something and forget it. 
they learn it, and then they use it continuously until it almost drives you crazy. Then they learn something else, and they use that, and they learn something else, and and they never stop using the mm. words and expressions and idioms and language elements that they acquire. So in the beginning, it's a very slow road. You look at the speed of word acquisition for a child between you know, 12 and 18 months old. It's pretty slow. But you compare that with you know, 18 and 24 months, now we're in a completely different zone. By the time you hit around 36 months, the, word, the new words are coming so fast you couldn't even log them into a book. Mm-mm. But you know what is very unusual to hear from a young child, hmm. like six or seven? I can't remember the word. See, if you ever notice, young children say that. Right. I've been watching, and I have never heard a grandchild tell me, I can't remember the word. <laughs> Why? Because they're in the word acquisition stage. They're mm-hmm. building this huge database. They're wired to use every word they're learning often enough, even if it's an experimental word or mm-hmm. an unusual word. Mm-hmm. It's only when we reach a peak of neurological uh, function that we start to not be able to use all the words we've acquired often enough to remember them all. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so same thing, you know, with with music pieces, you, you know. Now, is it easy to play every piece you've learned every day? It's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time. And what do you do? Well, you you did skating. I did. I know this about you. You yes. are a speed skater. I was one of those secret so if, trivia. What's questions. the longest race you could have to do? The longest race that I ever skated in was five thousand meters. Okay, five thousand meters. Uh, for people who need to translate, that's probably around three miles. Right. Correct. Okay. So you don't just one day say, "I'm going to go skate as fast as I can three miles." <laughs> no. I mean, you could, but mm-hmm. where would you get? Instead, what happened? You set out a training plan. Mm-hmm. Is it fun? Maybe, maybe not. But you do it because mm-hmm. you have a larger goal. Right. And and we tried to make it fun. You know, my dad was kind of my personal trainer mm-hmm. coach. I had other coaches, but my dad would have us do exercises to music, you know, our uh-huh. speed skating um, warm-ups and things to music just to make it a little bit more. And he was kind of the character, too. He could... He could inject humor, make things mm-hmm. fun, yep. create yep. little mini challenges yep. like a good coach yeah. would. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, if if you were left all on your own, it would be a lot harder to mm-hmm. keep the motivation going, mm-hmm. yep. right? Yep. And, you know, the younger you are, kind of the harder that is because the more you're ruled by the interest of the moment. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think this is one of the, the biggest dangers parents have, particularly when they say, I'm going to invest in music lessons, we're going to do piano, violin, cello, guitar, whatever. And then they let the child's desire to practice Mm. determine the practice. Right. And then when the child becomes less interested, the parent says, well, okay, we'll quit. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just set certain norms, Mm -hmm. this is what you do every day. We're not we're not going to adjust that according to your mood. Mm-hmm, right. Well, then you get much better long-term, right. long-term benefit. But, you know, in the States, it's I, – I don't know why it's so much harder. Either the teachers don't – probably it's most of the teachers never really understood the power of it. Mm-hmm. Consequently, they didn't prioritize it. And then you just go to a room full of Suzuki kids in America and say the word review, and you get a bunch of groans. 
Like, oh, no, we have to drag up these pieces that we're supposed to know, but we probably don't really, and it's going to be really awful. And besides, it's a baby piece because it's book two, and I'm a book four student. And mm, you get mm-hmm. all that going on. So, you know, when I came into teaching more than music, I understood from firsthand experience, both by observation and by implementing as well as I could, that absolute you maintain your repertoire. Every time you do it, it gets easier and easier and better and better. And the goal is to be able to do it so easily. You don't have to think what's next. Mm-hmm. And then you can actually observe yourself and get better. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, another word music students hate, polish, mm. right? Just walk into a music students and say, review and polish. And, ah. <laughs> no. So it can't be a thing that is that is viewed or becomes viewed as tedious at best and unnecessary at worst. It's got to be core. Mm -hmm. And that was somehow what the Japanese teachers did, was the the maintenance of the repertoire was core. Mm -hmm. Now, this cross applies, though, because the most immediate would be learning a foreign language. So learning English is both the hardest thing you will ever do and the easiest thing you'll ever do. The hardest thing because the first six years are really unpleasant and you're constantly being corrected and you never know if it's actually right or not. Mm -hmm. But you have this fearlessness of being five years old. You have no opinion about – you have no cares about what people think of you. Mm -hmm. You say whatever your brain puts together and then the world, you know, corrects that. Mm -hmm. But then as as an older student, either middle school, high school or as an adult, you go to learn a language – Oh, you wow. don't yeah. have the advantage of the absorbent mind of the rapidly growing, mm-hmm. you know, four or five-year-old brain. But you do have the ability to approach it in an organized way. And so there, there's an advantage, but you also want to not lose all the benefits of youth. The, the young people keep using words again, again and again and again. So when you're learning a language, you have to set up for yourself a constant reinforcement method, or else that word you learned, if there isn't that, as Mrs. Ingham said, spaced repetition, right. uh, you will lose it eventually. Yep. And any of us who have studied a foreign language have really good firsthand experience of having known something. This is true. This Fortunately, is true. my good friend Martin, he said to me once, in order to be a gentleman, you don't have to know Latin. You just have to have learned enough to have forgotten some. Well, <laughs> I would be in that category, too, because my boys did Latin in high school, yeah. all but my youngest one. And actually, my oldest son, who took Latin, resents that right now because he says, I really wanted to learn Spanish. Yeah. So he now, as an adult, is teaching himself Spanish. Excellent. And, of course, well, I took Spanish in high school. I got up to Spanish four. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot, but that means I've forgotten an awful lot. And he and I are trying to challenge each other. Have and fun. Good. And, and phrases are coming back to me, and I'm using it more. Of course, it's not very applicable here in Oklahoma to use my Spanish. <laughs> well, I mean, there are a lot of Spanish-speaking people. Well, any, I'm talking about here in the office. Anywhere you go. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, you have to make, make a point. But I wonder, has he reached an awareness of how the Latin background is making the Spanish easier? I am trying to convince him of that. I don't think he's quite there yet. (laughs) But nevertheless, uh, whether it's a language, whether Mm -hmm. it's a sport, whether it's an art, whether it's a base of information 
that is more like, you know, memorized stuff, but it, it empowers skills. And, you know, I have a whole talk on this subject, mm -hmm. which is math. You know, it's mostly about right. one of my kids and math. Mm -hmm. And I recommend that talk. But, but what you discover in working with math, and this is true really for spelling and grammar and geography and all sorts of stuff that you basically feel like you're just memorizing facts. Mm -hmm. Those facts then empower you to think better about something or to do what can become a skill. So knowing that six times seven is 42 is a fact, not a skill. Mm -hmm. And you can learn multiplication tables People have been doing it for many thousands of years. Yes. And calculators have only been on the scene for a short half century or mm -hmm, less. Mm -hmm. um, so there's absolutely no reason that any human being who has basic function cannot learn multiplication. What's the value of that? It's not trivia. I mean, it's kind of nice to know trivia, but it is not building skills the way math information is. Hmm. So you think about that. Now you have an algebra problem. You can't memorize every algebra problem that exists, but you notice in the algebra problem, there's a 42 or there's a six or mm -hmm. there's a seven mm -hmm. or there's more than one of those things. And so because you have that fact learned by rote, mm -hmm. second nature, mm -hmm. you look at it and you see 42 and 6, 7 is right there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to find it or figure it. Then when you see that, you can make the, the connections that allow for the art of solving the algebra problem. Right. If you don't see those connections, how do you deal with that? And, you know, this is where I kind of point out that, you know, with, with modern progressive math education, if you don't have solid addition and multiplication, you go to the next school year, they give you a new book with a number on the cover, and now you got to look at division. Division is super, super hard, tedious, frustrating, and can be tear-provoking tear <laughs> if you don't know really well mm -hmm. multiplication. Right. If you do know really well multiplication, division's not that hard. It's just a new way of manipulating the information you previously had. You get it even up to ugly long division problems that take a while because there's eight problems all inside of one, mm -hmm. but you can still do it because you know six times seven is 42 and all those other facts, you can see the relationships. Once we lose that, okay, the next year, grade four or five when you're in division, and then you go into fractions, then you go into pre-algebra, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And if no one ever says, the buck stops here. We do no more math. We address no more conceptual development until you have the mastery of the fact. And that's a super hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. It is really hard to take, you know, a 12-year-old, as is what happened in mm -hmm. my case. Mm -hmm. Daughter was almost that. And say, sorry, you know what we really need to do here is just have you work on addition. Yep. Single digit double-digit addition. Mm -hmm. Well, that's stupid math. That's baby math. I'm the dumbest kid in the world. You know, and you get all that mm -hmm. because it impacted. So hopefully, you know, this podcast can go out and maybe touch someone who has been thinking 
does my kid really need to know math facts? Mm -hmm. The school says no. My heart says yes. Where's the research? Well, you could go find the research. Mm -hmm. You could also use common sense, which I think I just explained well, pretty well. And as you were talking about the algebra problem, they have not developed a calculator that you can plug in an algebra problem into. Don't speak so fast. Yet. <laughs> Maybe not a calculator, but there may be websites. Oh, this is very true. Mm -hmm. And I know which one exactly that everybody's thinking about. Julie, there's blah, blah, blah that I'm not going to say. Right. So, you know, is that a bad thing to exist? That's an irrelevant question. How do you teach right. a child is a completely different question as to whether that is a good thing or not to right. exist. But that, see, that, that principle can apply to anything. Uh, and, and the biggest challenge we have is to not get attached to child being in grade, grade corresponding with number, number corresponding with book, book content being the required thing for all children that mm -hmm. approximate same age mm -hmm. because not all children are the same. Right. So ideally, a subject like math would all be an individualized sequence and you would only go to the next level of complexity or challenge when you demonstrated the mastery, which I would use the, the term that the Kumon people use, which is speed and accuracy. Right. And we, we, it's the first time you mentioned Kumon, so I want you just to spend one minute. Yeah. And this is not an advertisement for Kumon no, at all. We, this is no it's just relationship. Saying, <laughs> so there is an existence kind of a Suzuki approach to teaching children math. Mm -hmm. And I found out about it when I read an article that had been translated from Japanese into English, mm -hmm. which was an interview between Dr. Suzuki and Dr. Toru Kumon, who founded the Kumon School. Kumon founded his math program as the result of having a son who was failing in school. Right. And so... He said, well, I can't let that happen. He identified the problem, which is exactly the one I explained, going to complexity without mastery. And then he created the Kumon approach, right. which has no grade levels, nope. no age levels. Yep. They don't even have textbooks. They just have little packets. Yep. Yep. And the packet letters don't even correspond with age or grade or anything. So you're just in there. Speed and accuracy is what you're going for. You know, yeah. And it doesn't matter how old a student is, mm -hmm. they'll give you a placement test, right? and they will give you the problems you need at that level to increase your speed and accuracy. Right. And, you know, we do tend to think, okay, I understand the concept, so it's enough. Mm -hmm. I can move on, because that's what's interesting mm -hmm. to everyone, is mm -hmm. the new concept. Uh, or you take it to an extreme and say, really... We don't need any speed and accuracy. We just have to understand the concept because AI will solve the problems. Right. We just have to understand how it did it. And, right. of course, that's like reading a book on how to take apart a motorcycle and put it back together. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, If you don't do it, you will never be able to do it. Right, right. So I, I think that children can adjust to a culture of higher repetition. They're drawn to it from a young age mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of our listeners are involved with the classical curriculum mm -hmm. that uses um, long sequences of memorized, you know, history, 
events and mm-hmm. names and dates and mm-hmm. all of those things. And a lot of people say, why? Mm-hmm. You know, why even why even know when that happened? Mm-hmm. You don't need it. You can just look it up. But see, if you know when one thing happened, you know when another thing happened, and they're not part of the same lesson per se. They're not part of the same set of information. But you can make the connection. Yep. You say, oh, that was discovered when this was happening in that country over there and this other exploration had happened and that was the world at that time. That is priceless. But you never would get to that point without knowing the facts. Yep. And, you know, we could do another whole talk here and we're out of time on Daniel Willingham's work mm. and Daisy Christodoulou, who wrote Seven Myths of Education, who mm-hmm. worked with Willingham, essentially doing research, jumping through the hoops to mm-hmm. publish the research to prove, humorous as it may seem, that knowing stuff is good. Yeah. The more you know, yes. the better your reading comprehension is. Mm-hmm. So simultaneously, everyone wants better reading, mm-hmm. only no, we don't need to memorize and know facts mm-hmm. about anything. Well, the right. research is just fascinating and... Uh, uh, that would be, I think, another good talk. But for now, let's wrap it up and say... I don't think we got all my questions answered, but I think you demonstrated by your stories and your <laughs> your words exactly why mastery learning is a good thing. It's why we do mastery learning approach here at IEW. It's why your students will go through units one and two at the beginning of every, every year, yeah. and they will probably relearn the sentence openers and the dress-ups every year, but that's good because we want them to have that ability so I, to yeah, access I that information. This master teacher, mm-hmm. uh, in my experience, she probably was the best, if not one of the few very best Suzuki violin teachers in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. I spent two days. I, I flew to where she lived. I rented a hotel, and I spent two days doing nothing but just watch her teach. Mm-hmm. And there were some real key takeaways. Mm-hmm. That two days was probably more valuable than an entire year of college in terms of really useful, I will be a better teacher as a result of this. Yes. But one of the big takeaways was the way she would talk to the students. She would have a book seven or eight student, right? So playing the violin for many, many years, way above average for age, plays advanced, complicated, hard pieces, makes it look easy. And then she would still have that student play Lightly Row, mm-hmm. second piece in book one. And and the way she would do this is to say, now, you are now a book seven student. You must play book one pieces. You must play Lightly Row at a book seven level. Mm-hmm. There's a book one level of Lightly Row. That's fine when you're five years old. But a book seven student would never do that. Mm-hmm. So then there's this constant striving to get every little nuance of of tone and quality and dynamics and phrasing closer to perfection. Yep. And that that she had done it. She had moved her students from oh no, it's this tedious thing called review that I'm forced to do to no, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And uh, that's where we we want to encourage all parents and teaching parents and teachers in schools is how do you – you know in your heart what a student would benefit from. Mm -hmm. There may be resistance. The student has resistance. Maybe the parent, maybe the school. You know, Mm -hmm. there's resistance. 
So how do you coach them past that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I saw, I'll just finish with this one statement. When I saw the structure and style program, the very first time I went to Canada, met Webster, and I saw how this was set up, I thought, that is a Suzuki method for English composition. Hmm. That's for, that, is, that is a system for writing that embeds all of those aspects that work so well yep. in the world of music education. Yep. Thank you for learning those lessons, and thank you for IEW today. Yeah, and I apologize. I hardly get, let you get a word in on this podcast. <laughs> That's okay. You had a lot to say. You'll have to do a little soliloquy next time. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. <laughs>